Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Uh, We thank you, Father, for this reading of your word, and we thank you, Father, for the truth that is contained in it. And we ask, Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us as we study your word this morning, Father. We pray that, Lord, uh, you would be pleased to teach us and meet us where we are. And we pray, Father, that, um, uh, Lord, uh, we would truly commune with you uh, during this time, Father, uh, for the voice that we need to hear this morning is yours. So, Father, to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I love these Kindles are great. You can put hundreds and hundreds of books in these things and carry a library around with you just by carrying one of these things around. And one of those hundreds of books I have in here, uh, we have these words. um, On October 27, 1861, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon on the shield of faith from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16, the verse that we've come to this morning. And he introduced his text with these words, quote, Like the Spartans, every Christian is a born warrior. It is his destiny to be assaulted. It is his duty to attack. Part of his life will be occupied with defensive warfare. He will have to defend earnestly the faith once delivered to the saints. And he will have to resist the devil. He will have to stand against all his wiles. And having done all, still to stand. End of quote. What struck me about the, that quote, I stumbled across it uh, some time back, a few weeks ago, and what really struck me about it is uh, how different it is you know, to our contemporary years. We're not used to hearing things like that, are we? That, um, how did it go? Like the Spartans? Does anybody think of themselves like a Spartan? I didn't notice anybody walking in here all particularly swelled up and you know, nothing against the Spartans. Um, how about this? Every Christian is a born warrior. It's just completely foreign, isn't it? In fact, the whole idea of being in a war, the whole idea of, of mounting an attack, the whole idea of being in a defensive seems actually so foreign. It almost doesn't seem like it's even biblical, does it? I mean, after all, I mean, Jesus is, uh, you know, we, 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 the modern day impression of Jesus is that, uh, you know, he's really just kind of walking through fields and throwing rose petals down and everything is about love and the whole nine yards. Uh, but when we come to passages like Ephesians 6, which we've been studying now for some time, we, we get a whole other uh, idea of it, don't we? 
The Apostle Paul, giving his final exhortation here, is telling us to be strong and to discard any notion of trying to be strong in our own strength, but to be strong in the strength of the Lord. Why? Because we stand up against it. We stand up against an enemy that is seeking to destroy us. He is seeking to take as many souls uh, to eternal ruin with him as he possibly can. Now, if we're sitting here this morning and we're in Christ Jesus, uh, we, we don't need to be concerned uh, ultimately about eternal condemnation uh, because uh, Romans 8.1 and many other passages teach us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we might say, wow, good, we're off the hook. No, we're not. Um, though there may be no eternal condemnation ultimately awaiting us, ultimately, uh, this enemy, make no mistake about it, can make one shipwreck of our life. He can ruin our careers. He can ruin our families. He can ruin our ministries. He can, he can ruin, 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 and ruin. And believe me, he seeks 24-7 to do just that. What is the biblical answer uh, to this? How are we to safeguard ourselves against this? Put on the whole armor of God. Now, we've been looking at this uh, with some detail over the last few weeks. And three weeks ago, we began to look at the various pieces of the armor. And as we get into verses 14 and uh, through verse 19, and we start looking at some of the details, it's sometimes easy to lose the forest for the trees. We need to remember as we're thinking about putting on the armor of God that really what we're doing is we're putting on Christ, aren't we? Now, I will confess to you that there was a, there was a day when I first, it was first suggested to me, and I remember reading in the Bible, reading in places like this, that we need to put on Christ. And I remember thinking, well, how in the world do we put on Jesus? What does that mean to put on Christ? How do we put on Christ? Here the Apostle Paul is giving us a graphic answer to that question. We put on the belt of truth. He's giving us these, these uh, graphic images, if you will. We put on the belt of truth. A few weeks ago, we looked at what that was. What is the belt of truth? Objectively, it's the, it's the word of God, right? Objectively, it's the truth that we have here in the book. Uh, subjectively, uh, is we're, to put, we're not just to read these words and leave them where we found them. We're to use these words to lead and guide our lives. We're to be walking in this truth. And that's the other aspect of the belt of truth. We have it objectively. Here it is in the word of God. And we have it subjectively. For example, Jesus tells us, to don't, don't build your house on the sand. Why? Because when the wind comes and the, when the storms come, it's going to wash your foundation away and your house is going to, it's going to fall. Okay, that's the objective truth. Uh, it's subjective it becomes subject and we say, you know what, I'm not going to walk on the foundation of sand. I'm going to walk according to the word of God. And we begin to implement that into our lives. That's the subjective side of it. Does that make sense? That's the belt of truth. Then the breastplate of righteousness. The scriptures teach us that there's no one who does good, not even one. All turned aside together. We've all become worthless. These aren't words that we really like to hear, but uh, these are the, the, this is the testimony of scripture. There is a righteousness that is required for eternal life, and it is a perfect righteousness. And it is something that we do not have in and of ourselves, do we? That we have just got done confessing many sins and pastoral prayer. And probably if you're like me, you've already been up this morning confessing sins. At least I hope that we all have. That was my first order of business this morning was to confess sins. 
We don't have this righteousness that's required. The good news of the gospel is that there's righteousness available to us in Christ Jesus. It's a righteousness that we don't have. It's a righteousness that's made available to us by faith. By faith, we take this righteousness to be ours. And there we put on the breastplate of righteousness. How does that protect us? It protects us when the flesh is accusing us. And it protects us when the Satan is accusing us and telling us of all the wrong things. Reminding us of the mess that we've made in our lives. Most of us have had those opportunities to make some messes. And those messes sometimes come back and they haunt us in terrible ways. And Satan gets a hold of that and away he goes. The breastplate of righteousness protects us. Yeah, you know... You know, you're right, you're right, I did do all this stuff, I have done all this stuff, but you're, 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 you need to listen to me right now. Jesus took that away. Jesus made a promise with me, if I put my faith and my trust in him, that those things would be taken away. See, that quenches those, those accusations, doesn't it? To use the language in verse 16, which we're going to be studying in a few minutes, it extinguishes those flaming darts, doesn't it? And then we were looking at the gospel last week, the readiness given by the gospel. And I think a good way, I think the best way, the way that I remember this one is I think about the runner. You remember the runner I talked about last week? You know, in ancient times when uh, armies and nations went to war, there was no telephone, there was no telegraph, there was no radio, there was no way of communicating how things are going out in the battle line except for these runners, uh, a message would be given to a runner and a, and a person would literally run all the way back to his kinsman and then he would give a report on how things are going. Now, you can imagine the anticipation of the people that are standing at the gates. There were people whose duty, they were trained to be watchmen. They were standing at the gates. They're waiting for uh, these runners uh, or waiting for approaching armies. Should, the, should our, our uh, military uh, fail, then guess what? That, the, the enemy is going to be approaching. It was the job of the watchman to, to watch for these runners. And they could tell from a distance if good news was coming or if bad news was coming by the way they ran. And I think we can relate with that. How would you be running if you were the only survivor? It would change your stride, wouldn't it? You'd be crying, you'd be tearful, you'd be, you'd be a mess. But how would you run if it was victory? I mean, we can't wait to share good news, can we? And that's where that phrase comes from, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's what Paul's talking about. And you see the message that the runner's carrying Okay, in this illustration, that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel objectively. Subjectively, it makes a person ready because it's good news. That runner is going to be kicking up dust. He can't wait to get there and share it because the, the good news has affected him. Does that make sense? Have you been affected by the gospel? You know, do you, have you been affected? Have you been made ready by the gospel? That's the third piece of armor. And then fourthly, and this morning, what I want to do with the remainder of our time is take a look at verse 16. The Apostle Paul tells us there in all circumstances, uh, in what circumstances? In all circumstances. In which circumstance? He says, in all circumstances. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now, what is this shield of faith that the Apostle is talking about? Uh, let, let's take the phrase one piece at a time. Let's think of the shield 
Uh, in the original, the word is, uh, the Greek scholars tell us that the word is derived from uh, the word for a, that would describe a stone that was rolled in place of an entrance uh, in order to block the entrance. Uh, we might call it a door. Uh, it has this uh, kind of connotation of a door. And there were two different shields that the Roman soldiers would use. There was a small shield that they would use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then there was this larger shield that they would use. The word that the Apostle Paul is using describes this larger shield. It was probably about two and a half feet wide, about four feet long. And it was constructed out of a couple of pieces of wood with a brass uh, railing around it or brass uh, uh, outer uh, uh, shell, if you will. And on the opposite side of the soldier, it had uh, some cloth and some hide actually fixed to it. And the idea of the, of the hide was so that when the enemy shot an arrow or a dart that was set aflame, that that shield actually would have the ability to not only uh, keep the dart from hitting the soldier, but it would also extinguish the dart as well. Now, the, 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 the shield was large enough that a soldier could crouch down behind it and be completely concealed by it. And one of the common... Uh, methods of fighting then was taking these darts and putting a pitch on the end of them, setting them aflame and firing the arrows and firing the darts away. And we can see the mischief that that would cause. Uh, imagine being hit with one of those. Not only has the arrow protruded the skin, uh, but you also have the arrow on fire as well. Uh, so many injuries that might not necessarily be fatal otherwise would be fatal as a result of this. Uh, and aside from that, uh, they could shoot these arrows at objects with the intention of setting those objects on fire. Uh, so you can see how dangerous these things are. And the Apostle Paul is using, uh, this is probably the most deadly form of, uh, of, of weaponry that the Apostle Paul knew of at the time. And it's interesting that he would use that to describe the assaults of the evil one. You know, the flaming darts that are, that are sailed at us regularly on a regular basis uh, really describe any assault that we, would, that we would get from the demonic realm, whether it be accusations, whether it be temptations, whatever form. We can remember what William Gurnall said, that, that Satan has more, um, he has more tricks up his sleeve than an actress has costumes. You think of every movie that's ever been produced and how many different costumes have been used in all these movies. Satan has more methods than, than that. So you, we couldn't hardly even begin to make an inventory of these things. Uh, so this uh, shield of faith is to, is to uh, protect us from these flaming darts. Now, there must be something else said here. As I've said about the other pieces of armor, we make a big mistake if all we do is look at the Roman soldier. The Apostle Paul is really bringing this stuff out of the Old Testament. And the shield is no exception. You know, all the way back in Genesis 15, you don't need to turn there. Uh, just listen uh, uh, to this verse. All the way back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Uh, quote, this is the Lord speaking to Abram. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your shield. So this idea of God being a shield this metaphor of God being the actual protective covering of Abram. And this is echoed throughout the Old Testament in many places. 
If you will turn back to Psalm 3, which we, which we read earlier in our, our service this morning, we find this idea of a shield there as well. It's my intention to preach on this psalm here in the not-so-distant future. I think between our current series and our series in Romans, we'll take a little bit of a, a break and look at some of the psalms again. But Psalm 3, you'll notice the title. It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, this was a very dangerous time for David. Absalom, as if you're familiar with the history, Absalom decided he wanted to be king. And in those ancient contexts, it wasn't like, okay, Absalom wants to be king. I'm just going to go sit down and let Absalom be king. That isn't how it worked. In order for Absalom to become king, David had to be destroyed. Uh, what this meant when Absalom stole the hearts of the Israelites and, and usurped the throne, I mean, David really uh, wanted to be king more than he wanted his father. This would have been a terribly painful time uh, for David and also a very dangerous time. And if you remember the history, David has to flee out of Jerusalem, doesn't he? He has to flee. And only his most uh, loyal uh, servants attend to him as he does. And he writes this psalm either during this time or sometime at shortly afterwards, and he writes, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Yeah, uh, he had many enemies. They were searching and hunting him, in order, hunting him down in order to destroy him. Uh, verse 2, many are saying in my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But look at verse 3. But you, O oh Lord, are what? You're a shield. You're a shield. Now, as all of these fellow Israelites searched for David uh, with all those weapons in their hands, David is ultimately not warring against flesh and blood. Who's ultimately behind all of this? It's Satan himself. But God is his shield. God is his shield. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. David was able to sleep. Why? Because the Lord was his shield. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to just a couple more verses. Although we probably get the point pretty loud and clear, but there's one I want to read. It's, um, we could have went to Psalm 119, verse 114, but in Psalm 115, there's a couple of verses. Uh, again, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to these verses, verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Pretty much covers everyone, doesn't it? Pretty much covers everybody. Okay, so we have this metaphor of a shield. God, ultimately, God is our is our shield. We have one more part of this to explain on the shield of faith, and that's the part of faith. Uh, if there is a word that needs explanation today, it's the word faith. Uh, faith is so broadly understood today and so really misunderstood that um, I think it's difficult for us sometimes to discern true saving faith from all other forms of faith. People talk about faith. I can remember having a conversation. This was quite a few years ago with a woman over in East Liverpool. And uh, she said, I need to get back to my faith, is what she said. And I was kind of interested in hearing, okay, well, what, what would that look like? What is, 
what is this faith you need to get back to? In other words, what I was looking for is what is the object of your faith? And her answer was faith. In other words, she had faith in faith. And that's actually pretty common to have faith in faith. It's kind of like the positive power of positive thinking stuff, you know. We're going to have, things are going to go good with us just because we're going to think them good. We're just going to think this into existence. Um, it's a really popular thing today. Listen, faith has to have an object. What do I mean by that? When we had our music store, instruction was a big part of what we did. We had a lot of, we, I think, what we had, nine or ten instructors at one point. And they, they were very capable men and women. They, they knew what they were doing. And when customers came into the store and they inquired, you know, do you give instruction? With confidence, we could say, yes, we give instruction. And then we could ask them, well, what are you, what are you trying to learn? What is it that you want to do? And we would ask them what instrument they're trying to learn to play and what genre of music, because we had so many different instructors. And we, in good faith, could say, listen, yeah, here, here's a phone number. Call them or we'll have them get in touch with you. Uh, we could do this with lots of confidence because we had faith in our instructors. You see, our instructors were the object of the faith. Now, faith is only as strong as its object. It's misguided faith to think that you can do something or something can happen that's away from the potential of the object. Does that make sense? Faith is only as strong as its object. If I have faith in faith, what is that? That's nothing. So what is biblical saving faith? I don't think there's too many things we could talk about that's more important than this. What is true biblical saving faith? There's three parts to it. There's one, it's knowledge. Knowledge. You know, in Romans 10, you know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, you don't need to turn there, so listen to these verses. He says in verse 14, he says, How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, how is a person to believe in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? In order to believe in Jesus, you have to at least hear about Jesus. You have to hear about who he is. In other words, you have to have knowledge. We have to have certain knowledge. Now, uh, attended to that, we also have to have a second part, which is assent. Not only do we have to have this knowledge of, of who Jesus is, we have to mentally assent that, okay, Jesus is able to save us. In fact, today, I think we, we, need to, we need to actually be appraised of the fact that we need to be saved. I, I don't think that's really on many folks' radar screens today, at least as I talk to people. I, I don't think people are thinking they necessarily need saved. So uh, we have to have knowledge of these various parts of the gospel. And not only do we have to have knowledge of these things, we have to understand that, yes, that's, it's all true. I mean, we can have knowledge of every point of the gospel and say it's all complete nonsense. And there's many people who do and they write books about it and they give talks about it. Uh, so we have to have knowledge, we have to have assent, but these two things are not enough by themselves. And I can't stress this enough because there's a lot of people in the church who have knowledge of the facts, 
And they assent to the knowledge of the facts. And they think just by these two things, they've arrived in true saving faith. If that's all that you have, you have yet to arrive at true saving faith. We have to have knowledge of the facts. We have to assent to these facts. And we have to have the third component, which is we're trusting in those facts. What does that look like? I have knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh to save me from my sins. I have knowledge that I'm a sinner. Okay? I agree that this is true. But I'm also going one step further than simply agreeing it's true. I am trusting it is true. How do I know if I'm trusting it is true? I realize I've got a problem. I've got a big time problem. Perfect righteousness is required to get into heaven and I don't have it. That's the trust part. But I realize that Christ is offering it to me. The trust part comes in when I see that that the very best thing I could do would be to abandon this world and follow Christ. But see, without that trust, what I'm going to be inclined to do is I'm going to say, you know, this Jesus stuff sounds good and I think it's all true, so I'm just going to add it in to what I have going on. And there's many people that are trying to do that. The guiding principle of their life has nothing to do with Jesus. It's still accumulating stuff, doing this, doing that, pursuing careers, pursuing this, pursuing all. There's no list to the, to the worldly ventures that one could pursue. That is the governing principle of life. And then Jesus is trying to be added on to this. That's not saving faith. That's being blinded by the devil. There's still blindness there. Still blindness. We have to ask ourselves, as we examine ourselves this way, are we, is the governing principle of your life, Jesus, serving him? I love the parable that Jesus gives, you know, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man in search of fine pearls and upon the discovery of a pearl, you know, he's walking through a field and he finds this pearl. And he looks at it and he cherishes it with his eyes and he says, oh my. And he buries that pearl back in the field where he found it. And then he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can purchase that field and have that pearl. What a graphic illustration of saving faith. Is Jesus your pearl? Is he your pearl? Is he what you're on about? That's what saving faith is. And it's not perfect. It's not perfect. And it doesn't mean... That we don't go through seasons in life where we're, we're pushed off to the left and we're pushed off to the right. That's the purpose of the armor of God. That's why Paul says we need the armor. Because we're going to be assaulted on every side as we walk through this life. The devil hates it when we have communion with Jesus. He hates it when we love Jesus. He wants to do everything he can to keep us from it. So here we're told to take up the shield of faith. Okay, knowing a little bit now about what the shield of faith is. How do we take it up? As we look at taking it up, I think it helps explain further what it even what it is. How do we take up the shield of faith? We take the shield of faith up by taking Christ Jesus to ourselves. Let's think about let's think about this in terms of the cate- catechism we've been studying. You know, you think about the I wish um, I wish Emily was here right now because she would glow. You know, I wish uh, that I, you know maybe she'll listen to this message and she'll hear it. But she always glows when I talk about this stuff, and I'm looking for her, and she's not there. Uh, but when you think about the offices of Christ, the offices of Christ are what? Prophet, priest.
priest and king. And we've been studying those things. What's that mean? We take Jesus to be our prophet. What's that mean? We take Jesus teaching. He teaches us. He tells us, listen, don't build your house on the sand. He's performing his prophetic office as he does this. We say, okay, I'm not going to build my house on the sand. What do I build my house on? Build your house on me. Okay, it's the word of God that I'm going to stand on. Taking Jesus is, is taking the word of God and building your life on the word of God and all of the truths therein. Taking Jesus to be your priest. How does Jesus perform the function of a priest? He does so by going out on the cross. A priest offers sacrifices. Offers sacrifices for the atonement of people. Jesus doesn't come into the Holy of Holies with a, with a goat or a bull or a lamb. What does he come into the Holy of Holies with? His very own body, doesn't he? You see, as we take that up, it changes us. What do you mean, Jesus? You, 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 you don't offer a lamb, you don't offer a bull, you don't offer an ox. No, I offer myself because those things won't take your sins away. They ain't merrily pointed to me, but I have come and I'm going to wash you clean. And when we're feeling dirty, we take up the shield of faith. That's to take up Christ as our priest. And when we take Christ up as our priest, with the eye of faith, we're washed. You see how that works? Or we take him as king, and we're being tempted, okay? We're being tempted. That flesh is tempting us. One of his, one of his functions as king is to subdue us to himself, to give us self-control, to conquer that rebel that's in our hearts. So we take Jesus as king to subdue us. Lord, these temptations are getting the best of us. Take up the shield of faith. It'll extinguish those flaming darts of temptation. Why, as the old hymn writer says, listen, when we turn our eyes and look upon Jesus, the things of this world, they grow strangely dim, don't they? They grow strangely dim. You see how that works? So how do we take up the shield of faith? We take up the shield of faith by taking up Christ Jesus. Does this make sense? The shield of faith is so very important because, you know, the shield of faith actually protects all the other armor too, doesn't it? If I got a shield in front of me, I'm also protecting all the other armor that's behind the shield, all right? But there's something really beautiful, and I want to close on this. There's something really beautiful going on here. When we take up the shield of faith, there is a shield in front of us. Do you know who that shield is? It's Almighty God. He is our shield. He stands between us and the flaming darts. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this wonderful truth, O oh Father. This wonderful truth that you've given us to live by. You've given us to walk by in all circumstances, Father. We do call on you this morning for your help that we may take up the shield of faith. That it may protect us from all of these flaming darts which the evil one will fire and launch at us. Take us by surprise with. Now, Father, we pray that you'll give us grace, that we'll be mindful of these things, that we'll take this shield up at all times and in all circumstances. To these ends, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.